Evan Osner, you are the most informed watcher we know on the Xi Jinping case. He's a princeling of the old revolutionary era and now the most dominant figure in Chinese politics since Mao, apparently. Walk us through the history and how he got to be who he is. Xi Jinping was shaped more so than any other Chinese leader of his generation by history in some very clear and and quite remarkable ways. He comes from communist aristocracy, which sounds like a contradiction, except that from the very origins of the Chinese Communist Party, there was always an elite. There was a group of revolutionaries who were understood to be the vanguard. These were the men who had, and they were almost all men, who had led the revolution. They had fought the the nationalists, they had fought the Japanese, and when they came to power in 1949, they believed in an almost semi-divine right to rule. And Xi Jinping grew up in that world. His father was a man named Xi Zhongxun, who had joined the revolution when he was 14 years old. His entire life had been dedicated to making revolution. In fact, he joined the Communist Party while he was in prison as a teenager. He'd gone to prison at the age of 14 for trying to poison a teacher at school who he believed was not supportive of the revolution. So Xi Jinping grew up with his father's story. Xi Jinping has said, in fact, that his father talked so much to his children about being a revolutionary and the glory of that, that as his son put it, we got calluses on our ears. (laughs) But what's really interesting to me is the moment that Xi Jinping made a decision, which was at the end of the Cultural Revolution, a lot of the people his age, who the sons and daughters of the party elite, were going to the United States to get PhDs. They were going to Hong Kong to go go into business. Frankly, they'd had enough of politics. And Xi Jinping made a very different decision, and he doubled down on the party. He joined the party. He started to rise up through the ranks. And he said to his friends that, in effect, this was his best chance to make an impact in his country. And from that period, you see a very systematic, ruthlessly pragmatic approach to his building his career. Evan, there's something you've got to help us understand here. His entry into the party, age 21 or so, sounds like a man joining a priestly order. It's more than pragmatism. It's against the evidence of his father's life, and he can't get devout enough. Over the years, people have made the comparison between the Communist Party and the Vatican. You know, when you join the Communist Party, as, as Xi Jinping did in his teens, it's a devotional act. You're saying, in effect that I endorse and I give myself over to this party completely. And what that means is that many of us who sit and look at China and try to wonder to what degree can a leader like Xi Jinping point the country in a different direction. For instance, would he ever decide to go down a path of liberal democracy? For him, that idea is as ludicrous as the idea of somebody ascending to the papacy and then deciding essentially to give up the basic tenets of the Catholic Church in favor of some new idea. Hmm. The, the interesting thing is that at the same time that he is a fundamentalist or orthodox communist, he is also, in economic terms, highly pragmatic. Evan, one of your good sources speaks of Xi Jinping as being round on the outside, square on the inside. What does that mean? What it means is that he presents the appearance of being soft and 
open to alternative ideas, but is in fact very, very hard on the inside. He is a, quite a modern politician. He understands the give and take. He is good in a crowd. People like him when he goes overseas. But in the center of that, he is willing to do what is absolutely necessary to defeat his opponents and eliminate threats to his rule and make sure that his ideas are executed. What are there some real truth in his idea of democracy? I mean, it sounds in one term like um, Edmund Burke, who said he had the interests of his constituency at heart every second, but not their whims and not necessarily their votes. And he didn't, he didn't, he was not hurt by their disapproval and he took defeats. It's tempting, I can tell you, living here in Washington, D.C., it's tempting to look at our system and all of its paralysis and the, and the short-term political myopia that seems so crippling. And the uh, polling of everything, yeah. The polling of everything, you know, polling things before you even imagine whether to do it or not. And, you know, the, the um, sort of infinitesimal influence of the public, real or imagined, on the actions of people who are supposed to be moral leaders. I mean, that is, it is, it is appealing to imagine that there, is a, uh, that there is a leader out there who is both responsive to our, to our, our greatest needs, but is also not influenced by our short-term whims. I, I, the concern is that, the concern I would have is that, uh, that Xi Jinping has created a system in which there is no room for loyal opposition. And meaning that if you're somebody who fundamentally believes that China's moving in the right direction, in, in the broadest terms that you, you want to participate, uh, you want to help, there is no room for you unless you are somebody who has moved up through the ranks in the most traditional way. And the literal example would be a lawyer named Su Zhiyong, who was elected as a legislator in the city of Beijing. He was celebrated in the state press for being uh, an active young lawyer who clearly understood the way to make the courts more responsive, help to resolve problems. And when Xi Jinping came to power and he declared that he was going to go after corruption, Su Zhiyong took that as a great sign and he said, well, I'm going to help. And so he started using his NGO to encourage people to report cases of corruption. But when they did it, he discovered that in fact, playing a role from the outside was not something that the party welcomed. And Su Zhiyong was arrested for doing political activity that was unauthorized and was eventually sentenced to prison. And so you're losing, you're losing the participation of people who might otherwise contribute to the effort. Evan, speak of his special connection to this country, not least his daughter who graduated last year from Harvard, but he wants a virtually equal relationship with the United States and with President Obama. Obama has not reciprocated in that spirit yet. At the same time, Xi Jinping is at odds with great determination with American ways. Democracy, culture, consumerism, individualism. How does that play out? Well, she has a very complicated view of the United States. On one hand, he's very fond of certain things. You know, he came to the United States on one of his first long visits in the early 1980s where he visited a little town in Iowa, Muscatine, spent a week in the bedroom of a family there. Uh, he he was just like any other visitor. He went and toured farms and, and, and uh, feedlots, and he was collecting information in order to bring it back to a province in China where he could help uh, to try to uh, modernize their, inf their agriculture system. 
And he stayed very attached, actually, to Muscatine, Iowa. Over the years, he's gone back to visit. Once, he, uh, he's also invited people from Muscatine to see him in Beijing. And that's, that is sincere. It's not, a, it's not an empty political gesture. In some cases, you know, he really doesn't even publicize these things. And his daughter, uh, Xi Mingzi, has studied at Harvard under a, an assumed name. She uh, was there and graduated in 2014. And you don't send your daughter off to the United States if you think that your two countries are about to go to war with each other. But Ai Weiwei would say that's a symptom of the bankruptcy of the Chinese leadership. They're sending their pride and joys elsewhere to form their minds, their future. There's a lot of things that bother Chinese people about the fact that Chinese leaders send their offspring off to the United States, not just to go to Harvard or Yale, but also to go to boarding school here. I mean, I remember the first time a Communist Party official asked me, how can I get my son into Taft? It made me sort of reimagine <laughs> what it means to be a communist apparatchik. Uh, but at the same time, and there's he a wa- reason Because he wants the kid to go to Yale eventually. That's the point. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, and in a sense, I find some of that encouraging because what it means is that beneath all of the political fireworks about, you know, our system is at odds with your system intellectually, they do look at American institutions and they recognize what we recognize about the places that, are, that function best, which is they do create opportunities for creativity and, and, and intellectual debate that are simply not as developed in China by any means, and, and Chinese leaders would acknowledge that. So on one level, that's encouraging. But at the same time, Xi Jinping sees no, sees no contradiction between having respect for what Harvard can give to his daughter and also being deeply, deeply suspicious of America's political and diplomatic intentions. And he has said that he believes that the time has come for the United States to accommodate to what he calls a new type of great power relations, which is essentially acknowledging that China is now on an equal footing with the United States in many ways, not in all ways, but in some important measures of power. And he wants us to say, we will no longer try to make you, China, conform to our way of organizing the world, meaning you're no longer going to be playing second fiddle to our military in Asia. And And he wants us to acknowledge China's territorial claims in the South China Sea and the East China Sea. And the United States is not prepared to do it. President Obama has said, we encourage China's rise. He, and this is true. I mean, if you think about it, the United States has so many problems around the world today in the Middle East, in Ukraine and Russia, that it really cannot afford to have China be anything but highly functional. It's an absolute linchpin in the global economy. But what the United States is trying to do is very complicated, which is to try to ensure that China's rise does not come at the expense of American interests. And that's the challenge. It's, you know, in the end, Xi Jinping is trying to signal to the United States and to the rest of the world that the time has come for China to be able to set the rules of the road just as much as the United States. And President Obama is not prepared to agree to that. Evan knows back to Muscatine for a sec. I noticed an interesting point when you wrote about that. When he goes to Russia, he, he's very public about the Russian writers he loves, Dostoevsky and Chekhov, all the usual suspects. Somebody in France, I mean, he'll talk about uh, Montaigne or Balzac. In the United States, I, I don't hear that. There's no Emerson or Thoreau or Hemingway. or. Well, there is, actually. He's really? mentioned in the past that he is a big Hemingway fan. He says hmm. he went, when he was in Cuba, he visited... 
Hemingway's favorite bar, and he uh, <laughs> made a point to have a cocktail. And, a mojito? Yeah, exactly. He says that he had a mojito. And then he has mentioned uh, his admiration um, for Mark Twain, which was one of the reasons why ah, he wanted I was to wrong. go to Iowa was because he'd read about the Mississippi. And I think, you know, you can hold me to this bet, but I suspect that when he comes to the United States this fall on a state visit, which is scheduled uh, for September, that he is likely at some point or another to mention a long list of American authors with which he's acquainted. It's just part of his his political theater, and he's done it in, in a number of countries. But I think that, that the deeper fact, and this, I'll tell you one thing which I didn't put into the article, um, but uh, somebody who I spoke to who has been in Xi Jinping's private office, the area where he actually works and where he keeps his books, tells me that the books that he keeps on his shelf are are very much from the Chinese canon. You know, they are the classic Chinese texts reaching back all the way to the ancients, Confucius, Mencius, and, uh, and on up, and including um, the, the books that Mao Zedong would have considered to be some of the key texts on strategy, for instance, you know, we talk about Sun Tzu in the West, but in China, you know, Sun Tzu, the art of war, is is in fact a, car, a crucial a crucial text. I think the, the truth is that Xi Jinping mentions these foreign authors partly as a gesture of 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 friendship and support and openness, but as a practical matter, he is informed very very clearly and very strongly by the Chinese by the Chinese canon. And I don't think he would disagree with that. Evan, bottom line question for me, here's a modern man in so many ways with a modern wife with a absolutely religious devotion to the party and the party's survival. Come a crunch in Hong Kong or any place else, but think of Hong Kong. Would he order the firing on civilians as the last regime did in Tiananmen Square? I don't see any reason why he wouldn't take the steps that he believes are necessary for protecting the party. And if that means opening fire on people that he believes are, are deeply misguided and deeply threatening to the future security and safety of the Chinese people, I think he would. But it's a hypothetical. I mean, I think what we saw is, is interesting, which is that last fall, when there were, in fact, protests in the streets of Hong Kong that were very tense, and they were much larger and, and more confrontational than anything we'd seen before. There was a fear among people in the West that, well, maybe he is going to order in tanks into Hong Kong in order to prevent this from happening. And what we saw was something actually much more sophisticated as a response. They came up with a, essentially, the party's strategy was to wait out the protesters, give no ground, but uh, also not come down so hard that you galvanize opposition. And that was, in its own way, a much more modern solution than simply moving in with machine guns. And I think, and I certainly hope, and I think a lot of people do, that if there is another moment of political confrontation, and everybody expects that there will be, China is too big and too complex at the moment for, for there not to be the natural conflicts in society, that he will use the, the, play, the more modern playbook, which is Let's find alternative paths to conflict resolution beyond the use of brute force. I'll tell you one thing, though, Chris, is that I, what worries me slightly is that what we're seeing right now is this period of economic dynamism and reform, but also political constraint and repression. And we're seeing this at a time of stability and peace in China. And so if this is how things are being conducted 
when it's quiet, I worry that in a moment of crisis, when things are truly, uh, uh, truly desperate, meaning that there is some mass movement, there is some kind of um, serious threat to the to the Communist Party, whether it's an environmental crisis or some sort of natural disaster, that the toolbox that he'll turn to is is going to be harsher still. That's the concern. Interesting. The protesters in Hong Kong, Evan, are, you know, there for all the world to see. They're the very visible canaries in, in the coal mine. What about the rural minorities and poor, poor farmers? They're almost rats in the coal mine. What's their explosive power? Or do they have any? Yeah, they, the, traditionally, the most um, volatile parts of the Chinese landscape are not the, not the cities, but are in fact the countryside. That's where the revolutions have been waged. And at the moment, you, you see that people are still basically fundamentally satisfied enough with the system and the improvements in their lives that they're willing to maintain their support, even though you see small-scale protests across the country every day. It's been several years since the government released its statistics, but when they last released statistics on the level of unrest, they said that there were, on any given day in China, 500 acts of unrest, which is extraordinary, 180,000 a year. And there's no reason to think that's gone down. In fact, over the course of the last couple of years, you've seen that there has been a sharp rise in labor unrest. So as the economy begins to slow, workers are striking and, uh, and organizing more often than they did in the past. And that's going to be absolutely foremost in Xi Jinping's mind. If you wonder what Xi Jinping thinks about when he gets up in the morning, the single most important thing is how is he going to maintain public support of the Communist Party. And that gets harder as the economy slows. What we all want to know is what is the Chinese emperor saying to himself when he's pacing the floor in the middle of the night? Uh, imagine it. Summon him in your own words, Evan. You know, when Xi Jinping wakes up in the middle of the night, he is confronted by an absolutely staggering range of political and economic problems. He thinks to himself, I have to maintain the ideological supremacy of the Communist Party in an era when there is no other high-functioning Communist Party in the world today. I have to somehow convince a generation of young people who have been raised on The Daily Show and on Western action movies that, in fact, it's to their benefit to allow the Communist Party to censor the movies and the news and the internet that they receive. Somehow I have to figure out a way to take this economic engine that was so essential to China's rise over the last generation, and I have to figure out how to give it another generation of power when, frankly, all of the low-hanging fruit is already gone. China is no longer involved in the rapid catch-up period of its economic growth. In fact, it now has to become an innovative economy. It has to unleash those creative forces that are embedded within Chinese universities and, and private businesses. And I have to do all of it while not alienating my peers in the senior ranks of the Communist Party and the military, the people who have the ability, if they choose, to push me out of power. And that is a, a staggering set of challenges. And I think 
there's a reason why when we look at Xi Jinping today in video and photos and you see him in person in Beijing, he doesn't look like a man at rest. He looks like a man who is carrying a heavy, heavy burden on his back. And I think he is. Mm. Evan, that's magnificent. Do you wish him well? Of course. I do wish him well. I think the reason I wish him well is because so many people, uh, their, their lives depend on China's ability to continue putting one foot in front of the other. And I, I have no illusion that, that an abrupt political transformation in China would be anything but hugely, I think, costly for the people at the center of it. And that's one of the reasons why I hope that Xi Jinping adopts a path that is something closer to reform than it is to the status quo, because the alternative would be abrupt and uncontrollable. Evan Osnos, I hope you keep going back and telling us all about it and take us with you one time. That's a deal. Thanks, Chris, for having me. Pleasure, man. Thank you, Evan Osnos. I'm Christopher Leiden. You can hear more conversations on arts, ideas, and politics at radioopensource.org. 